Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, your host at Stand to Reason. I appreciate having you as part of the show here. And uh, I have a whole bank of callers that have been queuing up with the last hour. I'll get right to you in, in just a second. I don't have a big opening commentary. I just want to make a comment about something happening right now that actually some calls are coming up regarding, and so we'll get into more depth there. Uh, but <clears throat> this has to do with Gay Pride Month, which is the month of June. And uh, the whole country is celebrating homosexuality. Um, this makes no sense to me. On a, I'm trying to think of what basis now. In a certain sense, it makes perfect sense. From the perspective of the culture and where it's going and what it's trying to do and whatever. But what I, it, when you try to stand outside of that, uh, it, doesn't it seem odd to you? that a whole month would be celebrating somebody's sexual appetites, one slice of the culture's sexual appetites. Because it isn't like kindness to gays. It isn't like equal rights to gays, which kindness, I'm all for. Equal rights, I don't think there's unequal rights, and I don't think that the Supreme Court decision regarding same-sex marriage gave any meaningful rights to them that were appropriate. That's another issue. We've discussed that before at length. But what this is is, is a pride month. We are being proud of a particular sexual appetite. Just set aside all of the moral concerns that people have about this, especially Christians, Muslims also. But just set aside the moral concerns. It doesn't seem odd that we would celebrate some detail of some individual's sexual appetite. Now, if this is not evidence to, to you that—I'm trying to find the right words here to choose— that there's something spiritual going on? Well, then you're not seeing it with the same eyes that I'm seeing it with. It's, it's, I have written about this before. It's called Seeing the Unseen. It was 2017 when I wrote The Solid Ground. You can check that out if you want. But when there's something that everybody is kind of going for that just seems obviously upside down, and nobody seems to see it, and it has spiritual ramifications. This is evidence, in my view, of a what Paul called a scheme of the devil in Ephesians 6. Now, you know me if you've been listening for a while that I'm not the kind of person who sees a demon under every bush. It's not my style. However, there are spiritual schemes. Paul says that in Ephesians 6. There are machinations. There are strategies afoot. And there's a way to recognize them, and I talk about that, and I hinted at it a moment ago. Something is so obviously upside down that has spiritual ramification, but people don't see it. And there's a reason that people don't see it is because, as Paul has said, and other writers, Peter says it, uh, Paul says it in Second Corinthians 4 and also Second Timothy chapter 2, um, 
John says it in Revelation chapter 12, also 1 John chapter 5, that the world is controlled by the devil. He has blinded their eyes so that they will not see the truth. They are held captive by him to do his will. So when I see God's understanding of what sexual flourishing entails, and then I see the public not just doing things that God says not to do, but championing them. Remember, Romans 1 talks about that. And then towards the end of that chapter says, they not only do these things, but give hearty approval to those who do. Okay, well, now you know something spiritual is going on. This is upside down. But the question, in terms of application, is what do we do about that? What do Christians do about that? And my general response is, first of all, don't participate. And and secondly, don't cause a fuss. Let it alone. So how do we respond? We leave it alone. Except, I think, where governments, uh, and that includes schools, are promoting it, then I think there's a place for us to say no where government is getting involved promoting something that it has no business promoting. And is it is by, by nature um, divisive. Okay? I'm not going to go out and tell people or abrade people who are promoting gay pride. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. I'm not going to counter-march against gay pride or anything like that. The reason is, is it simply looks mean-spirited. There's no need for me to do that. Um, if, if there were no gays anywhere in the world, every people would still be just as lost. It isn't the unforgivable sin. It is a mark of our culture, one of the marks of our culture, of rebellion against God. That is clear to me, and that's what I started out talking about. But I don't see any virtue in going after these things and making a big fuss about it. And the only exception is is when schools are promoting things that they ought not be promoting. But the schools are doing all kinds of things like that. And in fact, now government aid is, there's threats of federal government aid being, um, being, being pulled, pulled back and, and um, from, from schools that don't participate in these kinds of things. So it's, it's a, it's an ugly picture right now in our culture regarding this. But our conduct, I think that we're, it's perfectly okay for us to leave it alone, not make a fuss not look like we're causing trouble when causing trouble here is not going to do any good in my view. Except in those cases where it's being forced upon our children illicitly, not only in government, by the way, but sometimes it's forced in private enterprise. And I think my first caller is going to have a question about that. Um, but that's my basic view. Let's. Um, I'm not going out campaigning against it. It's one of the many, many, many 
foolish, immoral, and rebellious things that fallen people do to um, to rebel against God. It makes no sense. And this is one of the reasons I think that there's some spiritual substance to what's going on, because there doesn't seem to be any other good rationale for it. Parading, and here I'm using the general sense, but certainly in the literal sense, during this month there are parades, but parading before the public with a prideful attitude, one's own peculiar sexual appetites. That's just weird. Nevertheless, our culture is given to it, and now we know why. We always did, because they don't want God, and they don't want God's ways. They're going to shake their fist at God, and that's what's going on. Anyway, that's probably what Yossi in Wichita, Kansas, has in mind with the call. Yossi, welcome to the show. Good evening, Mr. Kokel. How are you, sir? I really appreciate your time. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Well, this whole thing that uh, I was just talking about and you want to raise, it just frustrates me for a number of reasons, um, and that's aggravated by the concern that you're going to bring up. So I'm doing all right, but I, if I think too much about the culture, it, it does um, it makes me very sad and it makes me a little angry. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Indeed. Well, I, I think I share to some degree your, uh, your reaction. Uh, Blessings to you and your team at STR. Thank you. And um, again, thank you for your time. Mm, you're welcome. Uh, I, so I, I think you've answered some of my question already. Um, I work for a private company, and we you know, it's Pride Month, right? Mm-hmm. You know that. Yes. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and we have banners everywhere, and you can't walk down the hall without seeing the rainbow, which... You know, I thought that was a symbol of the covenant from the Almighty. Blessed be He. You know, I was just talking. Not destroy us again. Right. I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday. That that uh, that the use of rainbows for any aesthetic purpose is now destroyed. I was saying that you can't just use it because immediately somebody thinks about gay pride. But then I remembered just what you mentioned. Yes, and this was a sign from God about a special promise, and now it's been corrupted. And uh, and not surprisingly, if you think in terms of spiritual conflict. Indeed. I guess my question to you is, I, I've talked with some of my co-workers, and there are a number of us who are not happy about this, how what what is an appropriate tactical approach to bring this up to my boss mm-hmm. to say that i mean i the the banners we have a a system that displays various h r messages and one of those messages is how we should celebrate this month in this particular way. Another thing is that the website my corporate website that I routinely use has the big banner right on the front of it yeah and i I'd like those things to go away, mm-hmm. and I'd like to ask that question of my boss, mm-hmm. and I'd like to not have the Gestapo uh, attack me, and I'd like to keep my job. Mm-hmm. So what well, is a tactical approach for this? Yeah, the, the, 
it's like I have a, a bunch of responses bubbling up inside of me, and I'm not sure which one to give you first. Um, this is a little different circumstance than what I was talking about earlier, where we would go out and make a fuss with other people about it. Here you're in a workspace, all right, where your workspace is surrounded by these kinds of things. And so these are expressions that you not only have to endure, but in a certain sense, being associated with this business, you kind of tacitly are forced to participate in. Okay. And um, <clears throat> the fact that you would say, how could I raise an issue without losing my job? That you fear simply raising the issue might cost you job shows you how far down the totalitarian road we have gone. Okay, now this is what Rod Dreher would call soft totalitarianism. It's not the government taking your job away. It's your employer. Now, I don't know, were you just being um, speaking hyperbolically or exaggerating a little bit there? Or do you think if you raise the issue, raise the question, that your your job would definitely... That would jeff that's a definite possibility that you'd lose your job um I don't know. I have a lot of trust in and respect for my boss and my boss's boss, and I find them very professional well, good. I don't know beyond that I don't have a lot of dealings with uh with corporate h r uh-huh so this sounds like a really big company then yes, we're quite large. Okay, so the chances are you of you affecting any change there are slim to none. Um, especially that the bigger the company gets, the harder it is to change it. This is true about anything. Um, but especially when you are dealing with a um, a culturally volatile issue like this, a a a, a politically correct issue, they can't just change it without them facing punishment from the left as well. If they decided we're not going to do this, then they're going to get a lot more squawking than what you would give to them. And what you would give to them, I'm sure, would be gracious and generous. And what they'd get from the left is going to be violent. I mean, this is just the way they comport themselves when they don't get their way. So um, I, I, I probably... Um, What's the what's the Shakespearean quote here about uh, discretion is the better part of valor? I think in this circumstance, it's probably best n not to say anything or not to do anything, uh, with one exception. Um, if you felt comfortable talking to your immediate superior, it might be fair to talk to mention to them. You know, first ask the question: Why is it that? what we're doing this okay and then at least let him or her whoever your superior is express their reason okay and i think they're going to try to couch it in something that is socially pleasant and acceptable like well this is good for our people and good for relations and we're making it a more accepting environment and all that other stuff and then you can say well actually that's not the case because the people that approve of this are happy, but the people who disapprove of it are not happy, and they're scared to say anything about that. So it's not helping, you know, the, the work environment. Um, and it also causes the employer to take a, 
uh, officially take a position as an organization that is culturally divisive. And it includes you guys into in it. Why not just let it go? Now, I, I think that's a fair question to ask your immediate superior. It's kind of a chain of command. All right. And it might be that that sentiment will drift upstream, as it were, and uh, could have have a impact. I doubt it, but it might be. But that would be the only thing I think is worthwhile. If you were to campaign in a host, aggressive way that would be taken as hostility, then th- that is not going to do do any good. People aren't going to change their mind, and that's just going to make things harder for you. But I do think it's a fair question to ask. Why are we doing this at our company when there are people in our company who are offended by this. Why? Okay, now I'm saying it a little more harshly or sternly, but I think it's fair to go with your hat in your hand. Why do we do this? Boss, there's a lot of people who have a trouble with this. Why? Why do we do this? And so, okay. and see what they say. But but this is one of those things you'll see that is just has this tremendous momentum but I think if nobody speaks up and if, if, if there's nobody that says anything, then the louder voices get their way. And this is characteristic of what's happened. The left is always the loudest voice. So I think Certainly. raising the issue is fair. But uh, you want to be really careful. You do it kind of up the chain of command properly, and you do it in a gracious way. But the tactically sound way is to ask a question about it. Why? And then your response will depend on what they say. And I think it's fair to let that, that your boss know that there are people here that are really offended by this, including me. That would be yourself. And see True. what they say. Because obviously, obviously they're not committed to not giving offense. If they were committed to not giving offense, they wouldn't do anything. What they are committed to is, is, is appeasing a certain group of people, because that's what's politically correct. And so this is the celebration. Gay pride? Why, why not adultery pride? Why don't we have it—okay, this is June. July is adultery pride month. And August will be single-person masturbation month. Or why don't we just call it pornography pride month? Why not that? By the way, that's a serious question. It won't be taken seriously. But why one be proud about, about a particular detail, or uh, let's see, uh, a particular kind of sexual appetite and not another. Why? Well, of course, you and I know why. But I think it's fair to ask them about that. That's the best advice I can give. Okay. Well, thank you for your time and attention in this matter. You're you're welcome, Yossi. It does depress me a bit to think about it, but I know that because the culture is going its own way, but this is not the final, final analysis. This is not the final thing. I'm just thinking about. I was listening to, um, 
a sermon the other day by, uh, oh, for goodness sake, Amy, who's the guy from Cincinnati? Uh, Big, Alistair Big. And uh, he was reading out of Ephesians and, um, and, and just the state of affairs of the, of the, the pagan population that we're not supposed to be like. But I'm, I'm just, here, verse 17 of chapter 4, and, and what I thought of, Yossi, when I read, heard him read this, is I just thought of our culture. So this I say, Paul writes, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, and he's using that in terms of pagans, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. That Those verses, 17, 18, 19, just so adequately or appropriately, clearly describe our culture now. And that's what we're up against. And it grieves me to see it. It's, it grieves you. And we are kind of pulled into that. We, we are sullied by being around that. But this is why we have to rise above it in the way we live and also help others to see the light given the darkness that they're in. And that's only going to happen by the grace of God as we communicate as good ambassadors for Christ. So anyway, there you go. Okay, Yossi. Sounds great. Thank you, Mr. Kokel. All right. I appreciate your call. It's a hard one. All right. Let's go to Buffalo, New York, and uh, let me find it here. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I did did something wrong. This is okay, right? Okay. This isn't Buffalo. This is Somerville, South Carolina, and Art. Okay, Art, you're on. I made a mistake, and I pushed the wrong button, I think, but uh, you're up. Well, I hope you didn't... uh wax out uh, Buffalo. But, uh, no, no, case, they're still there, Stephen and Buffalo. He's still on board. But uh... Good, good. Well, it's good to talk to you. Um, and I have a, a question regarding um, your article from long ago regarding Exodus 21, verse 22, and uh, its relation to abortion. Yeah. Um, That's where I, it talks I, about miscarriage and the child comes out and and, and it's often taken. This particular passage is taken as a as a, um, a, a a justification for abortion because, on this view, Leviticus treats the unborn as less valuable than the born. That's the exactly. way the argument goes, right? Right. And my question was, um, I. I've been debating this with some people online, and I, I, unlike them, I actually try to look and say, okay, this is what Greg says. I, I like what you said. I, I agree with what you said. I thought you were very detailed in your explanation. And uh, But I, can, I went on ahead and, and tried to find something, if there is anything that disputes that particular article. And, and instead of finding something that was directly related to your article, I found something that came out prior to it that suggests a different way of assessing that. And it's, 
It was from something from a Matthew Flanagan in which he cites Russell Fuller, who who pretty much compares the Exodus passage to a variety of ancient Near Eastern legal codes like Hammurabi, Middle Assyrian laws, Hittite laws, and such, who he claims used is pretty much the same language, but it's never been taken as uh, producing a, a, a live child if if the woman was to mm-hmm. give birth prematurely. And and I was wondering if you're familiar with any of this and how you might respond to that. Well, I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, Amy handed me some things, so I'm, I'm scanning right now to kind of get up to speed a little bit. But the crate, uh, to me, okay, let me... Um, I'm going to speak broadly here, okay? The, okay. the issue here is what how does the Bible characterize the unborn as less valuable than the born or as valuable as the born? Okay? And mm-hmm. so that's a broad biblical question, all right? One piece of evidence regarding this comes out of the Exodus passage, chapter 21, okay? And given the translation of some Bibles, which say, and there's a miscarriage, but no further harm, further harm being to the mother, presumably, then there'll be a fine. But if there is further harm, then it should be life for life. Presumably, if the mother's harmed, or killed as a result of this violent act, all right? And so the difficulty here is the translation in English of the word miscarriage, because the word miscarriage in English implies the death of that which comes out, okay? And my my argument in the piece is that the Hebrew word does not m- imply the death of the thing coming out. It just says that it comes out. Now, I don't know about what other ancient Near Eastern documentation there might be about other codes like Hammurabi or whatever, but to me that's not relevant to the case at hand. We have to—if there were ambiguities, it's one thing. Maybe there's a parallel in the way this is constructed as these other laws, and the other laws don't say anything about miscarriage or whatever. What one has to do with regards to the internal evidence right there in Exodus 21 is they got to look at the words. The fact is the word that is used to describe the coming out in many, many other places is used to describe some living thing coming out. In fact, I think it's in Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going from memory now, but I think Genesis chapter 1 has the same Hebrew characterization talking about the earth bringing forth vegetation, okay? So what we can't do is we cannot read into the text the death of the child, which would be the standard way of understanding miscarriage, that this child that comes out is dead, because it doesn't say that. We have to work with what the words of the text in question says. That's it. Now, as I recall when I did my study on this, there are words that Moses could have chosen to describe a stillborn child. 
he did not use those words. He uses this other word. All it says is that the baby comes out. So the wording in the context, the internal evidence there, simply implies a premature birth. That's what it implies. Whether the premature birth turns out to be a stillborn child or not is not in view in that section. It may be in view in the phraseology that follows, and that is, if there is any further injury. Notice that the phrase further injury does not specify mother or child. And incidentally, it does call the child a child. That's the language in the text. Okay. So uh, then it shall be life for life. Okay, which is lex talionis. In other words, the punishment should fit the crime. Now you've got a more egregious crime. Now you've got a dead baby. All right. So my point my point would be in the text there is no reason to presume that the mosaic law is treating the unborn as some somehow subhuman or sui generis in its own category or is as if it doesn't have the same value as a as a, a human who is born because in both cases they're human Okay, but that's what's going to be required for someone to try to make the case for abortion from this text, the biblical case for abortion from this text. At very best, it's ambiguous. I actually don't think it's ambiguous, and I don't think that comparisons to other codes, even if they're in parallel construction, are relevant. What's relevant is what these words actually say. Okay, and so. At, like I said, at very best, you have an ambiguity. It could be this, it could be that. Well, that isn't strong enough to say that the Bible is in favor of abortion because the unborn isn't as valuable as someone else. No, it might be intimating that. Maybe. I don't think it does, but the most that this approach that's offered to you can do is make it ambiguous what's going on. Now, uh, I have in my piece, there's another section in the law there where there is some reference to a slave that gets killed, too. And no one would question nowadays whether the slave was a bona fide, valuable human being. But in those circumstances, there was a there was a, 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 a different kind of punishment that was involved there. So even in the case of an obvious human being. If we were going to accept this other take, which I don't accept, that the unborn has a lesser punishment, we don't have to even conclude then that that means it has a lesser value because the slave who is a born human being is facing a similar situation in another part of the, the, the more expanded text there in the law. I guess just dealing with Exodus 21 there's a whole bunch of reasons why the conclusion that people try to draw from this passage is not going to be it's not going to go through in my view and it, even if it's even if it's possible it's at best it's not decisive in any way all right however mm-hmm. what we're talking about is the biblical perspective 
So the Bible's more than Exodus 21. And you fast forward to Luke chapter 1, and you have something else that there's no equivocation possible. And that is John the Baptist, who is in the second trimester in his mother's womb, being filled with the Holy Spirit in the presence of Jesus, who is a zygote inside of Mary. And you can read that passage. In other words, they are themselves, even though under the wraps of the womb, even though mm-hmm. domiciled in the uterus, they are still themselves, is the point. And to me, that goes, that, that, that solves or answers any question anyone have about the biblical view of the unborn, which application one could make to abortion. Does that make sense well, to you? Well, yeah, and, and again, I I was pretty much uh, right there with you the whole time while I was reading the article, including the other uh, passages you referenced, and uh, still getting blowback. And but I I don't even even with what I presented to you here with this uh, uh, Russell piece is that as you as you suggest, regardless of what other codes and laws in, in that time might have said, and, and regardless of how closely it matches the Exodus, I always, my always perspective has always been, well, as, as a believer, I would put more um, uh, priority or, or importance upon what Scripture says over those things. Um, there's there's no way for me to determine which came first, even even regardless of the fact that supposedly what they have in terms of parchments for Hammurabi sure. being the but, earliest thing they have doesn't necessarily mean it was first. It's just the earliest evidence we have, you know. Sure, but and, Art, I don't think that's important. Which one came first? All that's important either. is what what <laughs> can we? Either. Sorry, I, I don't I don't consider it either i think it's almost um it's it's deflection and 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 camouflage for what i think if, if you're and i'm arguing ostensibly with christians here about this issue progressive christians if you mm-hmm. will and and if you believe then why would you bring up this other stuff and expect it to be um have have an impact on wh- wh- how we should take scripture. Um, I, I don't think it follows that because that might say this, even if it uses the exact same words, but they took it a different way. That that's what Moses meant, you know. Yeah. Um, it, and it, plus, it isn't like we have tons and tons and tons of material. Indeed. To compare with, you know, in the notes that Amy gave me, in, uh, no legal literature of the period ever referred to or dealt with a case where a woman gave birth prematurely. Okay, so what? It does seem yeah. to be that's what's being spoken of here in Exodus 21, but it isn't like we have reams and reams of information to do this analysis from either. What we have is the, is the, is the text itself and its context, and the words in question, and we know how the words are used in other texts in the Scripture. And that ought to be enough, I think, to draw the proper conclusion 
that the the child simply comes out as a result of the struggle, and nothing is said in the text there when the uh, about whether the child is alive or dead. But that is the unfortunate impact of the word miscarriage, which is the way yeah. some of the Bibles have translated. It's not justified, given the way we understand the word miscarriage. Nor do I think that a different fine, if that was the case, would necessarily suggest that that wasn't a person. Well, we're not talking you know? about whether it's a person or not. I mean, that personhood language is it's modern. This is modern language. It isn't. <laughs> it is. It, it is. isn't. And, the, and, the question is, is whether the, the kind of thing I'm dealing with. <laughs> whether the so, unborn human is this has the same status as the postborn human. And the point that I'm making from Luke is that in that case with John the Baptist and Jesus, there's no confusion about whether the one in the womb is the same one as the one we later learn about outside of the womb, whether John the Baptist or Jesus of Nazareth. That's the point that I'm making. Well, I, I, I absolutely agree with your perspective on all of this, mm-hmm. and, and this is what I was trying to argue um, with these fellows, and when I came upon this other article, it, it's, it brought up some things that didn't come up even in my prior discussions, but again, like I say, I go beyond what these guys are, are looking up and presenting to mm-hmm. me, and I try to I try to be my own devil's advocate for the things to which I uh, prescribe or, or, or ascribe, and um, in this case, this just seemed to be a very detailed review of this passage that actually went appears to go deeper than what yours is. And I and, and here's the thing: none of nothing that these other fellows with whom I was debating brought anything that came close to the detail yours did, mm-hmm. which which was another thing that I thought gave yours much more value than anything they were bringing to me. Well, thank you for that. Let me just make a parting comment here. What this approach is meant to do is make it look like it's possible that an Old Testament passage teaches or presumes that the unborn doesn't have the same value as a born. If it just because it's possible, that doesn't mean that's what it teaches. But Luke doesn't leave open that possibility. So the best you have is one passage, or not you personally, but the, the, the critic has, is one passage that might be read a different way. I give the reasons in my own piece about why that isn't a legitimate way to read it. There's a better way to read it. Nevertheless, Luke chapter 1 simply puts that whole argument to bed from a biblical perspective, it seems to me. Art, thank you for the call. I got to run here because I got a bunch of people on board, but I appreciate chatting with you on this. It's an important one. Let's go to Buffalo, New York, and now you're in, Stephen. Sorry about that uh, misstep a bit ago. Uh, that's okay, Greg. No, no problem. Hey, I appreciate you taking my call. Um, so I am a uh, a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Okay. And... Um, um, I'm a traditional Bible believing in inerrancy, uh, traditional marriage, conservative Christian. Uh-huh. And um, just to give you where I'm coming from. Okay, got it. Um, my struggle is I'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure you've been following the, the United Methodist Church to to, to some level. Um, the official church teaching on marriage has still been upheld. Uh, 
no thanks to the United States Church, but all thanks to Africa and Asia. Uh huh. Um, you know, offering their votes at general conference. And uh, but in the United Methodist Church, it's uh, in the United States, it's 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 just lawlessness. Um, you know, I'm sure you, but you've seen some of the stuff mm-hmm. in the news and just. Uh, well, there's uh, a lot of there's a lot of problems. Although it is a mixed bag, and there are some. Well, I'm not sure. Now I'm thinking about maybe I've gone to Methodist churches that uh, that seem to be solid, but I don't know that there's any United Methodist churches in America that are solid. So, I mean, it's a problem. Obviously, they've yeah. all tilted yeah, left. And, and there are there are solid churches still. I mean, it's, the United States is probably about thirty percent of the clergy. Um, I'd say only about ten only about ten percent of them uh, ever talk about human sexuality because they're afraid of backlash. Um, in, in my church, I preach the full truth of the Word of God. Good for you. And, um, and, uh, but I guess the thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, you, you mentioned when the government's uh, pr- promoting the gay agenda. Well, I do have my denomination doing so, right. uh, as well as critical race theory. Uh, they're really pushing that. And um, so my, uh, there's a text that's bothered me since I've been a United Methodist pastor, which has only been about four years. I came out of the Church of the Nazarene, mm-hmm. and um, the passage is First Corinthians five, and right. I know you, you you know where I'm going. Where yeah, he says, right. You know, I, I've told you not to associate with anyone. And he says, but but I didn't mean of those of the world, because then you'd have to remove yourself from the world. But now I'm telling you not to associate with a brother. Who, anyone who claims to be a brother or calls himself a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, et cetera, don't even eat with such a person. Mm-hmm. So the a dilemma for me is, you know, my denomination, the denomination still, their official teaching is still marriage is, is, is you know, is between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least how it plays out practically, at least in the United States, it isn't that way. Um, uh, you often feel like you're, you're, you're battling, you know, I'm trying to teach my my people the, the word of God and and uh, counteract the the world, but I also have to counteract my own my own denomination. Yes, of course, <laughs> constantly. Yeah, well, good <laughs> you know? for you, and uh, that takes courage, and courage is a uh, rare uh, virtue nowadays. And um, with regards to First Corinthians five, I mean, a little tight on time here, so I'll try to cut to the chase. Yeah. This yeah. is talking about an individual in a local body. And okay. not to, when you have individuals in local body that are living immoral lives, that the church, local body leadership, ought to discipline that individual. Um, now you're talking about a denomination, but you are a light in a dark denomination, and in your local body, you're not, you, 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 you're not dealing with the kind of situation Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay. However, this situation is not good. And if you're in a denomination that is promoting, at least tacitly, in many cases, not the denomination proper, according to what you've told me, but many individuals in the denomination are, are, are promoting immorality, then you have a problem in the denomination. You mm-hmm. are a light there, though. I mean, I don't see your circumstance as a pastor teaching the truth in your local congregation as a violation of 1 Corinthians 5. Okay. Right? Uh, however, th- there is a problem, obviously, of worldliness, immorality in a, the larger group you're associated with. 
the fact that you can speak truth into that situation is, I think, a good thing, although you may not be allowed to for very much longer. They may give you your walking papers before you give them their walking papers. Don't mm-hmm. know. So far, the denomination has survived. And so what you are doing is you are preaching and uh, and teaching in a way that's consistent with what your denomination says is right. If you yeah. were in denominational leadership, well, then there should be maybe an occasion for disciplining other members, church um, congregation, congregational members of the denomination. That mm-hmm. is, if you have churches that do not agree and will not live by what the denomination says is true, and it's a weighty matter, then they should be asked to leave the denomination. Now, I suspect that's not going to happen, and I'll tell you why. There's money involved. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but yeah. that's the reason. It's unfortunate, but because mm-hmm. there's money involved. You know, mm-hmm. if, if, if it, it, here, we're, let's take 1 Corinthians 5 and expand it to denominational um, application. So you don't have, a in a case of a local church where an individual member is going the direction that we see, immoral direction sexually in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, cast him out, basically, church discipline. If you have a de- whole denomination whose individual members are individual churches, and those individual churches are promoting sexual immorality— then then the individual church should be cast out. It seems to me that would be an appropriate application of 1 Corinthians 5. But the, you're not in a position to do that because you're one of the churches. You're not part of church, the, the denominational authority. But for the denominational authority to maintain its integrity, I think that's what would be required. But as we both agreed, they're probably not going to do that because— it's too expensive. I mean, there okay, are other costs that are involved as well. But I'm sorry. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I that, that, that's really helpful. I'm, I'm I, I um, have found peace, and um, I need to be faithful where I am yes, and sir. preach the full truth of the Word of God. And what the what the denomination does, if they change their official teaching, that'll be different. But yeah, but yeah. For the, for the time being, I'm you know I'm doing my my uh, God called duty. Good for you, Pastor. Mm-hmm. Stand tall. Okay. okay. Thank you. Okay. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That's that's painful. All right. Let's go to uh, Jesse in Twin Cities, Minnesota. Jesse, welcome to the show. Hi, Mr. Coco. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You're so welcome. Um, <clears throat> so I have this uh, something written out, and it probably take about two minutes to flesh out. Is that okay? Yeah, no longer than two, though, because we're short on time. I'm sorry to say that. Okay. So I was recently in a conversation with someone about some things that Jesus said. We started talking about the parable of the sower. I don't know where you stand when it comes to eternal salvation, but I was trying to say that the seed that fell on the rocky ground where people were initially saved but then fell away. I was trying to say Jesus was speaking universally but this person seemed to think Jesus was only talking about the preparedness of the Jews' hearts. I think this person might be influenced by the new perspectives on Paul, and I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. Uh, I, when the, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, when I said that 
when I said that what Jesus was speaking is universal, you said Jesus' ministry was only for the Jews. Eventually, the passage comes up of Matthew fifteen twenty-one to 28, and he says this passage shows that Jesus was here only for the lost sheep of Israel. I then said, I believe it can be both simultaneously. Jesus can speak both from an immediate context and a universal context at the same time. He pushed back and said, I was calling Jesus a liar because it would mean that Jesus wasn't speaking to the Jews if he was speaking universally. So I said, the universal thing that Jesus is trying to get across is that God tests our faith sometimes, and Jesus ends up praising this woman for her faith. Mm-hmm. So I think in the case of the particulars are that Jesus came specifically for the Jews, not making Jesus a liar, but that the universal idea is that God tests our faith, maintaining that Jesus both spoke in the immediate context and speaking universally. Yeah. So here's a question. Do you think that Jesus spoke contextually, universally, or both? And how would you separate those things if Jesus is sometimes being contextual and sometimes being universal? Well, the answer, in a certain sense, the answer is is a simple one, at least in principle, and that is you have to look at the text in question, okay? Broadly, what was Jesus here to do? Jesus was here to fulfill the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, which is to be a blessing to all the nations. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the first three verses. So, when Jesus was here speaking, sometimes he's addressing Jews as Jews, but other times he is speaking in a universal fashion, and certainly his 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 uh, uh, um, his broader purpose is universal. John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own, that would be Jews, did not receive them, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Also, chapter 10 of John, um, a conversation, a fight, really, with the Pharisees. Um, I have other sheep that you do not know of. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. You're not my sheep. You leadership people, you guys are giving me a hard time. You're not my sheep. The Father has given my sheep to me, and I have other sheep, too. That's characteristically been understood as a reference to the Gentiles, okay? When Jesus is born, you have, in the birth narratives, you have wise men from the East that come and worship him. I mean, that's part of the point that Jesus came to save many, not just to the Jews, okay? Now, there may be some passages where Jesus is making comments in general, or I should say in specific, regarding a group of Jews. I'd have to look at the context. I'm not, maybe Matthew 15 is like that. I'm not sure. I don't have time to go right to the details. But it can, one cannot mistake, given the multiple references, that what Jesus came to do was to reach beyond the nation of Israel. Look at very early in either Matthew 4 or Luke 4, wherever, where Jesus is speaking in the synagogue. He, 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 he speaks of the Old Testament and the, the woman, a widow from Zarephath, whose son was raised, and also Naaman, who cleansed in the river to lose his leprosy. These, things, these were Gentiles that he's speaking mm-hmm. of. And it said, when the people heard these things, 
Then they said, this man should not be allowed to live. Jesus was constantly making reference to the Gentiles that were part of his broader plan and not just the Jews. So Mm -hmm. this is throughout Scripture. So as a general thing, I think it's entirely fair to, 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 to conclude from, the, from the, the broad scope of Scripture that God intended through Jesus to save Gentiles, not just Jews. And we yeah. also see this in Acts chapter 10 with Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, but um, uh, the, Peter going to Cornelius, you know, into his home. So mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't understand this you know, the strong emphasis that Jesus just came to for the Jews because, by your friend, because this is clearly not the case, given the rest of the passages that we see where Jesus' intention is expressed even against the 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 goodwill of the Jews that he's speaking to, and that would be that other passage at the synagogue that I was mentioned. So uh, I, I, I don't—there's lots of verses that give us good reason to believe in this, uh, in Jesus' expansive ministry. Yeah, he, w- he would say Jesus was a rabbi, and so Jesus was fulfilling that rabbi uh, role, and so when it comes to after Jesus resurrected, then it becomes more about, well, that we want to include the Gentiles, too. So that would be, I think, the perspective that this person would have. Well, of course, if he's a teacher in that environment, he is going to be called a rabbi, all right? That doesn't mean that his teachings pertain merely to Jews. How would we know? We have to look at the teachings. And when we see the teachings, what are the rabbi who, and again, I I, I get my Matthew and Luke passages mixed up here. I think it's in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is there at the synagogue. The rabbi, Jesus, reads, and then he says, today, he doesn't read the whole thing, he reads part of it, and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, okay? Mm-hmm. And everybody, well, when you watch this thing in the movies, everybody goes berserk. That's the way mm-hmm. Hollywood characterized it, but that isn't what happened. When mm-hmm. Jesus actually reads it, it says, everybody was speaking well of him, all right, and I'm I'm looking for the passage now here. Um, oh, nuts! Maybe it's chapter four. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is Luke chapter four. Everybody is speaking well of them. Verse twenty-two, and wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his hip, his lips. Is this not Joseph's son? How could this guy know so much? Kind of deal. And then he said, um, there were many widows. Verse twenty-five. In Israel, in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of the Jewish widows, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile, okay? And there were many Mm -hmm. lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28, and all the purple people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. Why were they mad? Because now he is talking about Gentiles, which they hate. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the synagogue in Capernaum, Luke chapter mm-hmm. 4. So from the very outset, his message included the Gentiles, 
not just the Jews, even though he was a Jewish rabbi reading from the script on the Sabbath. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Thank you so much. That that does clear it up. Um, yeah, and, and it does clear up the other issue, too, of whether or not Jesus is speaking universally or contextually, because those are kind of overlapped, it seems like. Sure. And I, I, I think that when he says in Matthew 5, for example, you are the light of the world, you know, a, 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 a lamp on the hillside, you know, however that goes, you know, you don't put a lid on the lamp, right? You set it up. Now, it may be, and Amy and I have talked about this, it may be that he's not speaking to the disciples as Christians. He's talking to the Jews who are to be the light of the world. Okay, that might be a contextual thing. But it would follow that all of those who are his, not just the Jews, would that would apply to. It just is being spoken to the Jews in that circumstance. I don't know. You've got to look at the context is what it amounts to. Hey, thanks for the call. Appreciate that. And that's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them a heaven. Okay? Take care. Bye-bye now.